The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Backpacking around the world, very few ideas bring to mind such a sense of adventure, independence, and romantic idealism. For one young woman, in November 2018, traveling the world before jumping into a career was a dream come true. But she never could have imagined the danger in store for her in what is widely considered one of the safest countries in the entire world. Join me now as we take a look at the sudden disappearance of British backpacker Grace Mullane in Auckland, New Zealand. You'll hear how a young woman looking for romantic connection crossed paths with a manipulative con man, never to return home again. Outside North America, the concept of a gap year or an overseas experience for students or recent graduates is far more culturally encouraged than in the US or Canada. In countries like New Zealand, Australia, Israel, and the UK, taking a year off from school or work to travel the world isn't seen as particularly rebellious or something only reserved for the extremely adventurous. Instead, for many, it's seen as a rite of passage. In the UK alone, Nearly 250,000 young people take a gap year each year, with more than half of those dedicating themselves to traveling. Britain's rich history of religious pilgrimage dates back more than a thousand years and is one of the reasons travel and adventure is so deeply ingrained into British culture. Throughout the Middle Ages, as many as one in every ten Britons were engaged in a pilgrimage each year. One of the most popular destinations for these English pilgrims was a place called Lincoln Cathedral in Lincolnshire, one of the finest examples of architecture in all of Europe. When its central spire was completed in 1311, it replaced the Great Pyramid of Giza as the tallest building in the world, a height only exceeded in 1889 with the completion of the Eiffel Tower. And just like countless countrymen before, Lincoln Cathedral marked the end of a long journey for a 21-year-old woman named Grace Mullane, her graduation from the University of Lincoln on September 13, 2018. Chancellor, I'm pleased to present the graduands receiving first awards from the Department of Marketing and Tourism and for the Honours Degree of Bachelor of Arts in Advertising and Marketing, Grace Mullane. <laughs> I can find no better parting words than those of Alfred Lord Tennyson, whose statue stands in the grounds of this cathedral, for those setting out on the voyage of life. To strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Good luck to you all, and thank you. With a degree now in hand, Grace was destined for success. For starters, she had the right pedigree. Her father, David Mullane, was a millionaire property developer 
who ran a construction company just east of London. She was also surrounded by an extremely and supportive encouraging family, including her mother Jillian and her two older brothers Declan and Michael. But Grace had more than just a good family. She had brains and personality, talent and charisma. Excelling at sports and art, Grace became the vice captain of her university hockey team and also built a remarkably impressive portfolio as a gifted watercolor artist. With a bright future ahead of her, the world was truly her oyster. But before diving headfirst into a career, Grace wanted to see the world. In October 2018, just before departing England, Grace uploaded an Instagram photo of her latest watercolor painting, a skull with the caption, Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Tracing her own mother's footsteps from a previous journey, Grace flew out of Heathrow Airport and spent five weeks backpacking through Peru, falling in love with local Peruvian chocolate factories along the way. The highlight of her trip was a hike along the Inca Trail to the ancient ruins of Machu Picchu. After five adventure-filled weeks in South America, it was time for Grace to see more of the world. Her plan was to visit New Zealand, Fiji, and Australia before returning to the UK the following June. On November 20th, Grace landed at Auckland International Airport in New Zealand's North Island. With 1.5 million residents, Auckland is New Zealand's largest city by a long shot, almost four times larger than its next most populated cities of Christchurch and Wellington. Not wanting to waste any time, Grace immediately set out to explore the area, heading north to Auckland to the Bay of Islands, before continuing all the way to Cape Reinga at the northernmost tip of the country. In New Zealand's native Maori culture, Cape Reinga has special significance. It's said to be the location where dead spirits enter the afterlife. Through this leg of her journey, Grace was traveling solo, but was the kind of person who made friends easily. At the Cape, she posed for a photo with two fellow backpackers, with the Cape's breathtaking views in the background. This would be the last photo she'd ever post to her Instagram account. After a week of traveling the northern regions of New Zealand, Grace returned to Auckland on November 29th and checked into the base backpackers hostel in downtown Auckland a popular destination for travelers looking to save a few bucks while meeting like-minded travelers along the way. The hostel had a well-earned reputation as a party hostel, boasting three bars, including one in the basement and one on the roof. Almost immediately, Grace began making friends with fellow backpackers. On her first night there, she sat with a group at the hostel's rooftop bar as they discussed their upcoming travel plans. Grace was particularly excited about visiting New Zealand's South Island, but she wasn't only interested in meeting other fellow travelers, she'd also been hoping for a little bit of romance. And so on November 30th, Grace logged into the Tinder dating app and was matched with a local Kiwi named Jesse Kempson. After exchanging a few messages, they agreed to meet the following day for a date. On December 1st, the day before Grace's 22nd birthday, she met with Jesse around 5.45 at Auckland Sky City, a casino, hotel, and restaurant complex just two blocks away from the hostel. 
Grace was wearing a black t-shirt dress paired with her white Converse low tops. For a Tinder date, Jessie seemed like quite the catch. The 26-year-old New Zealander of Maori descent told Grace he was a manager at an oil company. He was also a good-looking guy with the build of a rugby player. Throughout the evening, the couple stopped in at several bars and restaurants, progressively getting more comfortable with each other as time went on. After more than a few drinks, Grace sent messages to one of her friends, telling her how well the date was going. In fact, it was going so well, Grace decided to go back with Jesse to his apartment around 9.40 p.m. The day after Grace's Tinder date was December 2nd. It also happened to be her 22nd birthday. Despite being halfway around the world, Grace's parents had taken great comfort in being able to keep in close contact with her adventurous daughter through WhatsApp. But when her birthday came and went, and they never heard from her, they became worried. By December 5th, Grace's parents filed a missing persons report with the police in New Zealand after days of hearing nothing from Grace. When police located the hostel Grace was staying at and found her belongings unattended, they knew something was seriously wrong. Immediately, Detective Inspector Scott Beard began soliciting the public for any information about Grace's whereabouts. It's important if people think that they've seen Grace, that they contact us. I know a lot of those will be unconfirmed sightings, but it's important that we know because it could fit into a, a jigsaw puzzle and that could be one piece of the jigsaw. Look, the longer this goes on, the more concerning it is. At the moment, we don't have any evidence of foul play, but we're keeping an open mind. Two days after filing Grace's missing persons report, her father David flew to Auckland and arrived on December 7th. Grace's mother Jillian wasn't able to make the trip because she was undergoing treatment for breast cancer. Shortly after arriving, David made an emotional plea to the public at a press conference. As you know, Grace has been missing for several days. We last had contact with her on Saturday the 1st of December. And as a family, we've been extremely concerned for her welfare. Grace is a lovely, outgoing, fun-loving, family-orientated daughter. Grace has never been out of contact for this amount of time. She's usually in daily contact with either her mother, myself, her two brothers, members of the family on social media. I don't know if you know, but Grace is on a year-long worldwide overseas experience. Grace started this travel journey in Peru in South America and at the end of this was really looking forward to the second leg in New Zealand. She arrived here on the 20th of November and has been bombarding us with numerous photographs and messages of her adventures. We're all extremely upset and it's very difficult at this time to fully describe the range of emotions we are going through. While we are very grateful for the media coverage both here and back home, we are finding this situation quite upsetting and would sincerely hope that, these, that the media continue to respect our privacy. Finally, I would like to take this opportunity to appeal to anybody 
has seen, spoken to, or come into contact with Grace over the last few days. And to come forward with any detail, no matter how many, how small, and contact the investigation team. Once again, I thank you all for coming. More than 25 detectives and officers were assigned to Grace's case. As they combed through her social media, looking for any potential clues, an officer noticed a new comment on Grace's most recent Facebook profile picture that read, beautiful, very radiant. The comment was left by Jesse Kempson, and at first, it appeared to have been posted on December 2nd, after Grace's disappearance. This raised a red flag to the officer, who then contacted Jesse. Police soon discovered Jesse had been with Grace on the night she had disappeared and interviewed him on December 5th. In an odd twist of fate, Facebook's timestamp of Jesse's Facebook comment turned out to be misleading. The comment wasn't made on December 2nd, and upon further inspection, police determined the comment had in fact been made at 9.30pm on December 1st, during Grace's and Jesse's Tinder date. Nevertheless, the false lead produced a very real person of interest. Our investigation into the disappearance of English tourist Grace Mullane is progressing rapidly. Since she was first reported missing on Wednesday, we've had made multiple inquiries as we continue to search for Grace. As part of our investigation, we have reviewed hours and hours of CCTV footage, and this will continue throughout the weekend. We now have the last known sighting of Grace at 9.41pm on Saturday 1st December at the City Life Hotel with a male companion. Police have identified this man and he has been spoken to. Through our investigations, we have also identified location of interest and apartment in the City Life Hotel in Queen Street. We are conducting a scene examination at this stress. I understand there'll be lots of questions about what we are doing and why we're doing it and exactly why we're there. However, this is an ongoing investigation and I'm not at liberty to discuss the details that some I don't have at the moment. The scene examination Detective Beard referred to was Jesse's room at the City Life Hotel, an apartment he rented by the week and the room he and Grace went to after their date. During Jesse's police interview on December 5th, Jesse admitted he went on a date with Grace, but wasn't sure if he was being catfished or not. Tell us about Grace. Uh, so I was talking to Grace on Tinder. Yeah. Um, we'd matched on Friday. I saw that we'd matched um, the next day on Saturday. Um, and then uh, we met at Sky City and then we decided that we are going up to Andy's Burger Bar um, which is on the first floor. Hmm. Whose idea was it to go to that particular burger place? Me. Because I knew, I didn't initially know that she was real. What do you mean? Well, there's a lot of, so have you heard of catfish? No. So catfishing is where someone uses your profile, uses your photos and pretends to be you and then meets, and you're a completely different person. Right. Um, and it's, on Tinder, it's all about the way you look. Um, and so if they use more endearing photos, um, you're more likely to swipe for them. Okay. Yeah. How does, a, how does meeting in a public place 
sort of protect you from meeting someone who's not as good looking as... Well, there's security there. So if she wasn't who she said she was, um, at least in my mind, I'd feel safe. It's interesting that throughout Jesse's interrogation, he emphasized the importance of his personal safety, and detectives were convinced he wasn't being completely forthright. Later, he tells the detective that after they hung out, they went their separate ways. Where are you guys going now? So she's going that way, and I'm going across the street. Where do do you walk? Uh, I go down Queen Street. Uh, No, I go down Victoria Street, uh, straight down to the bottom, and then hang a left, and I head towards the viaduct. You go to the viaduct a bit? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. You've, you've kind of walked in a bit of a funny direction if you were planning to go to the, the viaduct. Well, it's the direction I normally go. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I'm just sort of saying, like, if you were, if you were planning to go to the viaduct. I normally go down Queen Street and then cross at the bottom of Queen Street, go through the, um, the containers yep. and then walk along, along. the wharf. Yeah. Is there a particular reason you were going to do that? Uh, I feel safer down that way. Um, I... I don't know, I just... It's a lot safer for me to be walking down that way than walking down the back streets. Okay. Over the next two days, police and forensic experts examined Jesse's apartment while they put him up at a nearby hostel. Inside Jesse's apartment, detectives used luminol, which revealed two large pools of blood had been cleaned from the carpet. It also revealed bloody footprints throughout the room. The shape of the probable blood staining and the presence of blood and other residues in the underlay and the floor provide strong support for the proposition that cleanup of blood had occurred in this area. With this new information, detectives interviewed Jesse a second time on December 7th, just hours after David Moline delivered his public appeal for information regarding his daughter. This time, Jesse arrived at the police station with his lawyer, and a very different story. Jesse now admitted bringing Grace back to his apartment. He also claimed Grace had begun talking about the book Fifty Shades of Grey, and then asked Jesse to get rough with her like the characters in the novel. He then told the detective that he and Grace engaged in consensual sex that was rough, and that afterwards he took a shower. And then all I remember is falling asleep in the shower. Um, And then waking up, um, it would have been, I I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was still dark. Um, I crawled back into bed. Um, Initially, I thought Grace had left. The next morning, Jesse said he woke up to find Grace lying on the floor. I saw that she had blood coming from her nose. Um, I I screamed, I yelled out at her, and I I tried to to move her to see if she was awake. Um... I, I need, I need to stop. I need to go. 
But Jesse doesn't go. After briefly choking up, he continues on with his story. I dialed 111, um, but I didn't hit the button um, because I, I was scared how bad it looked. Why did you think it looked bad? Well, there's a, a, a dead person in my room. After deciding not to call paramedics, Jesse described what he did next. Um, I went to the warehouse at the atrium. Um, and brought a suitcase. Um, I went back and I was just in shock um, because it just didn't seem right. Jesse then told the detective he went out and bought cleaning supplies. What he said he did next was perhaps most shocking of all. So I messaged a friend and said I'll meet you at Revelry. After finishing drinks with, with her, I got back to um, city life. Once Jesse was back at his place, he told the detective he felt ill when he tried to move Grace's body. I, I spewed up a few times because I couldn't put Grace in the bag. Um, because all I could think about was what we shared the night before. I put her in the bag. After Jesse put Grace's body into the suitcase, he retrieved a baggage dolly from the lobby and transported her body down the elevator to the car park. Once she was in the trunk of the rental, he went up to his place and fell asleep. The next day, at about 5am, drove the car out to Cumu at first. I picked up a, a shovel from ITM at Cumu. I didn't know where to go. Um, I ended up driving towards the Waitakeries. I went into the bush. I dug a hole. And I sat there. I went and got the suitcase. And I covered the hole. The detective then asked Jesse what he did with Grace's possessions and where he cleaned the car. Where is her possessions? Um, I threw them in the rubbish. Whereabouts? Um, Albert Park. Right, so what items of her property have been disposed of in Albert Park? Um, everything. Everything that was in the room. Right. Whereabouts did you clean the car, the outside of the car? Um, I think it was in Henderson. I, I don't know West very well. Okay. And what did you use to clean the car? Um, a water blaster thing from the car cleaning place. 
Once the detectives had all the pertinent information prosecutors would need for a solid case against Jesse, he cut to the chase. Did she have any injuries? Not that I can remember. I was just panicking. Did you inflict any injuries on her that caused her to die? Uh, no. Did you kill Grace Mullane? And you're under arrest for the murder of Grace Mullane on or about the 2nd of December. Okay. You understand? Yep. Once the detective was finished questioning Jesse, Jesse's lawyer had a question of his own. Did you intend to cause her death? No. Are you ready to take us to where she is? Yeah. The investigation into the disappearance of Grace Mullane has developed this evening. Just after 3 p.m. this afternoon, a 26-year-old man was located at a central Auckland address by police. He was brought back here to the Auckland Central Police Station and is currently speaking to us in relation to the murder of Grace Mullane. Sadly, the evidence we have gathered to this point in the inquiry has established that this is a homicide. Grace's family have been advised of this development and they're devastated. The man has still been spoken to at this point. Obviously, this means that we are treating Grace's disappearance as a homicide investigation. On December 9th, Police located a shallow grave about an hour west of Auckland, in the Waitakere mountain range. After walking only approximately 30 feet into the forest, detectives discovered the gravesite where the suitcase was buried. Inside were Grace's remains. I can now advise that a short time ago, we located a body which we believe to be Grace. The formal identification process will now take place, However, based on the evidence we have gathered over the past few days, we expect that this is Grace. The discovery of Grace's body sent shockwaves throughout New Zealand, and on December 10th, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern issued a formal apology to the Mullane family on behalf of New Zealand. Firstly, I cannot imagine the grief of her family and what they will be experiencing and feeling right now. And my Thoughts and prayers are with her father, David, um, who is in the country, um, her mother, Gillian, who cannot be here, uh, and her wider family, friends, uh, and loved ones. You know, from uh, the Kiwis I have spoken to, there is this overwhelming sense of hurt and shame that this has happened in our country, a place that prides itself on our hospitality, on our manaakitanga, um, especially to those who are visiting our shores. And so, on behalf of New Zealand, I want to apologise to Grace's family. Your daughter should have been safe here, and she wasn't, and I'm sorry for that. On the same day the Prime Minister addressed the country, Jesse Kempson made his first appearance in court where he was granted name suppression. In New Zealand, it's common practice to forbid news agencies from publicly releasing the names of the accused before trial. The rationale behind name suppression is to help protect a person's right to a fair trial, as well as preventing their reputation from being tarnished before they're found guilty. In the case of Jesse, as it is with many crimes of a sexual nature, the right to name suppression is controversial. Critics argue it prevents other victims of the accused from coming forward. While the New Zealand public would have to wait 
To learn more about the identity of Grace Mullane's murderer, detectives were already digging deep and uncovering more than they bargained for. Using Auckland's extensive CCTV footage, detectives were able to piece together footage from almost every minute of Grace and Jesse's Tinder date, right up until they exited the City Life Hotel's elevator on Jesse's floor. They also began to learn that Jesse was a pathological liar, and perhaps even a sociopath. The more they learned about Jesse, the more certain they became. Grace's death was no accident. Jesse Shane Kempson was born on December 28, 1991, outside of Wellington, New Zealand. When he was still very young, his parents divorced and his mother moved to Australia with his brother. Raised by his grandparents for a time, he was eventually reunited with his father, who reportedly subjected him to physical punishments and possibly abuse. At age 19, Jesse had a severe falling out with his family and moved to Australia for six years, where he unsuccessfully tried to reconnect with his mother. The rest of his childhood is a bit of a mystery, with the only real certainty being that Jesse Kempson was a liar. In 2016, Jesse moved back to Auckland, where he began to develop a reputation and track record for telling endless lies. He had a degree in international law, his family were millionaire restaurant owners in Australia, his cousin played rugby for the New Zealand All Blacks, he had stomach cancer, he was a spy for the CIA, and a manager of an oil company. These were just a few of the endless lies Jesse told women he met on Tinder. But his lying didn't only seep into his dating life. From 2016 until his arrest in 2018, Jesse was kicked out of several apartments and fired from multiple jobs as a result from his dishonesty and unusual temper. He was kicked out of his first apartment in Auckland after a few weeks. Three female roommates he had at one point began to realize there was something peculiar about Jesse almost immediately. Every day he'd put on business attire and tell them he had important meetings to attend. But before long, they realized Jesse didn't even have a job, a car, or any friends. And when they asked him to leave, he told them he had to leave anyway because his mother had passed away in Australia. Another lie. After being booted from his apartment, Jesse stayed for a few nights with a woman he'd met on Tinder. Despite not having a physical relationship with Jesse, the woman let him stay with her until he found another place. It wasn't until she dropped Jesse off at his new place and returned back home that she noticed he'd stolen $800 from her closet. A week later, Jesse called the woman and confessed to robbing her, and although he cried throughout his confession, he never returned the money or spoke to her again. It was around this time Jesse also became noticeably more violent, angry, and unhinged. But he still talked a good game on Tinder and became obsessed with meeting women. In September 2016, Jesse began a relationship with yet another woman he met on Tinder. This time the story he told was that he was adopted by a wealthy Australian man after his mother tried to kill him as a child. That's why it was confusing 
when Jesse needed his new girlfriend to pay for everything, but he had an explanation. It was because his father was being accused of fraud and all the family's accounts had been frozen. It didn't take long before the relationship became violent. Whenever Jesse got angry, he threatened her with a kitchen knife to her throat. One time, he even chased her with a knife, telling her the CIA had sent him to kill her before forcing her to perform sexual acts. Eventually, she found text messages to another woman on Jesse's phone, which finally convinced her to leave him and file a protection order against him. On April of 2018, Jesse met another 21-year-old British backpacker on Tinder, and he brought her back to his apartment where she refused to become intimate with him. When she attempted to climb into the bed and go to sleep with her clothes on, Jesse climbed on top of her and raped her. Just six weeks before meeting Grace, Jesse took another Tinder date back to his apartment, the same room he would later murder Grace. Once inside his place, Jesse's date was clear. She didn't intend on having sex with him. Suddenly, Jesse began suffocating her by putting his full weight onto her face. As she suffocated under his weight, she began kicking and struggling, but wasn't able to move him. Finally, she decided to go limp and pretended to pass out. After a few moments, Jesse finally stopped and became apologetic, pretending it had all been an accident. Eventually, the woman saw an opportunity to flee the room and escape before anything else happened to her. Immediately, she sent a text message to her mother that said, I'm lucky to be alive and not been tortured. Call me in the morning. These are just the stories from the women who came forward about Jesse. It's horrifying to think how many more unknown women may have been victimized by Jesse. On December 1st, Jesse attempted to set up a Tinder date with another woman he'd been messaging for six months, but she was busy that night and declined his offer. Instead, he met up with Grace Mullane that night. After Jesse's arrest, detectives began to learn the sordid details of Jesse's past, many of the details coming from various women who had contacted police after Jesse's name was illegally leaked in the foreign press and on various social media sites. But the most damning evidence against Jesse came from Jesse himself when detectives began looking through his phone. At 1.30 a.m. on December 2nd, presumably after Grace was killed, Jesse picked up his phone and did a Google search for Waitakere Ranges, the exact location where he would later dispose of her body. Just minutes later, his next search was for hottest fire. Instead of taking a shower and falling asleep under the running water, as Jesse told detectives, Jesse was already busy looking for ways to get rid of Grace's body. It also revealed he was lying about discovering her body when he woke up the next morning. At 1.41 a.m., Jesse began looking at pornographic videos on his iPhone. Shortly after, he took a series of nude photos of Grace's body before watching more pornography on his phone until 2.17 a.m. Next, Jesse made a few more Google searches that included 
rigor mortis, carpet cleaner, and extra-large bags. On the morning of December 2nd, Jesse was awake at 6 a.m. and began googling rental car agencies in Auckland, as well as large bags near me. Later that same day, he would also search for flesh-eating birds, trying to learn whether or not there were any vultures in New Zealand. And if that wasn't horrific enough, Jesse took it one step further. At 8 a.m., he messaged one of his matches on Tinder to set up a date later that day. He messaged her again around 10 a.m. and again around noon. Jesse's phone records convinced detectives and prosecutors beyond any doubt that not only was Grace's death not accidental, but that Jesse actually had experienced sexual gratification from murdering her and was possibly looking to do it again. Jesse's actions after her death were not the actions of a panicked man who just experienced a horrific tragedy. Rather, they were cold, calculating, twisted, and creepy. CCTV footage from area security cameras again captured almost every minute of Jesse's actions in the days following Grace's murder. Early in the afternoon of December 2nd, with Grace's body still in his apartment, Jesse left his room to meet a woman he'd been messaging on Tinder all morning. However, the date didn't go as planned for Jesse. The woman immediately felt something seemed off about him. He seemed aloof, drank his beer too quickly, talked a lot about venomous snakes, and was telling her obvious lies about being friends with prosecutors and police. During their conversation, Jesse told his Tinder date that police in the area were having a problem with bodies being buried in the Waitakere Ranges, even telling her how police dogs were unable to smell a body if it was buried more than four feet underground. Then he told her about a man who had accidentally strangled his partner to death during rough sex and added, It's funny how guys can make one wrong move and go to jail for the rest of their lives. By the end of the extremely awkward date, the woman was feeling decidedly uncomfortable. As they exited the bar, Jesse told her where his car was parked, and her car was parked in exactly the same location. But because she wanted to get away from Jesse as quickly as possible, she lied and told him her car was in the other direction. She had no way of knowing how that one small decision could have possibly saved her life. Although the evidence against Jesse was overwhelming, that didn't stop Jesse from pleading not guilty to Grace's murder. For Grace's family, this meant they'd be forced to sit through a lengthy trial where Grace's background, sexual history, and character would be put on full display to be examined, exposed, and shamed. When his trial began in November 2019, Jesse maintained Grace's death had been an accident, the result of strangulation during consensual rough sex gone wrong. And this is what his defense intended to prove. We're here to investigate why Ms. Mullane died. Was it as the Crown wants you to accept as a result of some assault for which we have absolutely no motive for? The scene itself, while it shows that there was bleeding, namely bleeding from the nose, which he saw when he 
discovered who did. There is no environmental or forensic evidence suggesting some form of violent assault within that room. People do things when they're stressed, when they're panicked, and often a combination of both under the influence of alcohol that they might later regret. And in reality, the window that Mr. had to do the right thing was relatively narrow because the more time that elapsed with him not doing the right thing made not doing the right thing immediately look like the wrong thing. And the reality is that no matter what he did, once he realised that she had died, unless he called the authorities, that was not going to look good or stand him in good stead. Because if this couple engaged in consensual sexual activity, which included pressure being applied to her neck with her knowledge and consent, and that went wrong, and no one intended for it to go wrong, that's not murder. He may not have done the right thing afterwards because of a concern. No one would believe him. But don't prove him right. The prosecution laid out its case against Jesse by arguing that deaths like Grace's just don't happen by accident. In this case, to have killed Grace Mullane, the defendant, gentleman over here at the back behind me, had to have had her under his grip, suffocating her, if that's the right term, strangling her is probably the correct term, for a total of five to ten minutes, at some point of which she lost consciousness and would have become under his hand hold unconscious and limp and lifeless and he had to carry on and if that's not reckless murder in this country ladies and gentlemen somebody will have to explain to me what is this is not sex play this is not restricted breath games this is holding a person's neck and throat and wrapping your hand or hands around it however you did it for an extended period of time, feeling their struggle as she must have struggled for her life, and then going limp and into unconsciousness, and you carry on. And the point in time in which you make the decision as to whether he had a murderous intent is when he carried on. The prosecutor also walked the jury through Jesse's actions after Grace's murder not signs of how a normal person would behave after an accidental death. Again, because of Auckland's incredibly extensive CCTV coverage, the jurors were able to watch Jesse on video doing almost everything the prosecution claimed he'd done. The first thing we know he does is at 1.29 a.m. he Googles or searches Waitakere Ranges. Now what that suggests is his response to the emergency is to figure out a way of disposing of the body. The second response is then to look up hottest fire. 
And then, at 1.41am, on the website porn. Then for the next uh, three minutes, he watches further porn sites, or he accesses further porn sites. And then at 1.46 to 1.49... The prosecutor pointed out to the jury that Jesse intentionally purchased two suitcases, one to transport Grace Mullane's body, and the other was a decoy, specifically so he could tell detectives his suitcase was still in his room. I'm telling you, that bag is still in my room. What's in it? Nothing. Nothing's in it. What was in it then? Nothing. Where did it come from? The warehouse. Which warehouse? Uh, atrium. When did you buy it? That day, because I was going to have to move all my stuff out. Boy, that tells you something about his mindset. That tells you something about who you are dealing with in this case. There's lots and lots <coughs> of people involved in some level of what's generically, broadly described as BDSM activity. And you know what? People aren't dying in their beds, are they, of, of this behaviour? They're not mounting bodies in the streets because someone's touched their neck in a bit of rough sex or held it for them momentarily to give effect to some sort of pleasure. She didn't ask to be killed. You can't ask to be killed in this country. You can't consent to murder. Jesse's defense claimed he had no motive to murder Grace. It was suggested to you in the defense 50-minute opening that there is no motive in this case. Really? When Grace Mullane was dead, he took that photograph there. When she was dead, he has eroticized the death of British backpacker Grace Mullane, which occurred under his handhold and on her birthday. He has a morbid interest, a morbid sexual interest, and he has memorialized it for himself by taking the photographs, and that is the ultimate triumph of the defendant over Grace Mullane. Ultimately, however, the prosecution faced an uphill battle, proving exactly what happened at the moment of death during the sexual encounter would be challenging, because no one else besides the victim and Jesse were in the room when it happened. The words on Grace's watercolor skull are haunting. Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. This simple fact makes what has become known as the rough sex defense, a far too convenient defense strategy for people like Jesse, a defense that is not only convenient, but effective. At the time of Jesse's trial, it was estimated that approximately half of the defendants who used the rough sex defense received lighter sentences. Fortunately, around the time of Jesse's trial, detectives, pathologists, and courts around the world were beginning to understand just how implausible it actually is to accidentally strangle a person to death. During sexual strangulation, a person deprived of oxygen to their brain will pass out and become completely unresponsive after just a matter of seconds. In order to kill someone, a murderer would need to continue to apply constant, powerful pressure for a minimum of four more minutes, 
making it completely unreasonable to believe a person could actually kill someone in this fashion. It's so rare, in fact, there isn't one known case of accidental strangulation during sex in the history of New Zealand. The pathologist who examined Grace's body was an extremely convincing witness for the prosecution. All I can say that it's been due to uh, pressure on the neck, and that pressure has been applied for long enough for that bruising to occur, and with enough force for that bruising to occur. Can you speak to how long that might be or what that level of force might be? No, I can't. All I can say that it's clearly it's the bruising wouldn't occur, I don't think, with a sort of a, a gentle pressure on the neck. It has to be something a bit more forceful than that. So it can be from manual strangulation, it can be from a ligature, it can be from a, what we call a choker hold. So when you put the arm right round the right round the neck, or it can be from a forearm bar hold, which is really just the forearm going straight across the neck. Uh, it, Either of those could cause this injury. To starve the oxygen of brain to cause death, you need to starve the brain for at least four or five minutes. Now, to maintain uh, pressure on the neck to sufficient to do that for four or five minutes is actually takes quite a bit of effort. It's a, quite a long time. It doesn't seem like it, but to do it for four or five minutes would actually take quite a bit of strength. Ultimately, the jury found Jesse Kimson guilty of first-degree murder of Grace Mullane, and he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum period of 17 years without parole. After the trial, David and Jillian Mullane spoke to reporters outside the courtroom to express their heartbreak as well as gratitude to the people of New Zealand. You'd have to forgive me because I'm not very good at this. Uh, the verdict of murder today will be welcomed by every member of the Belaine family and friends of Grace. It will not reduce the pain, the suffering that we've had to endure for over the past year. Grace was taken away from us in the most brutal fashion a year ago, and our lives have been and family have been ripped apart. This will be with us for the rest of our lives. Grace was a beautiful, talented, loving daughter. Grace was our sunshine, and she will be missed forever. Just three weeks later, another horrible tragedy struck the Mullane family. Grace's father, David, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Just weeks after the murder trial, he passed away in November 2020. In the aftermath of Jesse's trial, advocates from all around the globe began decrying the rough sex defense. One of the first was Detective Scott Beard himself. Strangling someone for five to ten minutes till they die is not rough sex. If people are going to use that type of defense, all it actually does is repeatedly revictimizes the victim and the victim's family. And in this case, the Malanes have had to sit through the trial for a number of weeks and their daughter's background, rightly or wrongly, was out in the public. I don't, I don't believe that rough sex should be a defence. I understand why defence would use it, but the bottom line is the individual has killed someone. Soon after the guilty verdict, Jesse's name suppression was lifted and it was revealed 
Two of his former victims had come forward to police while he was in prison awaiting trial. After his murder conviction, Jesse was also found guilty in separate trials of raping the other British backpacker, as well as eight charges of sexual violence against his previous girlfriend. Without his name being illegally leaked, these victims may never have come forward. The case of Grace Mullane and the trial of Jesse Kempson sparked outrage back in the UK, causing lawmakers to pass a new law in 2020, which prohibits the use of the rough sex defense in court. Britain is the first country to officially ban the defense, something the Mullane family hopes is the beginning of a worldwide trend, and they believe New Zealand should be next. Upon hearing the news of the government's ban on the defense, the Mullane family responded, We are pleased that the government are stopping rough sex being used as a defense. It needs to be called what it really is, and that's murder. Families won't have to sit and listen to only one side of the story, whilst the victim is re-victimized and doesn't get to tell their side. It was truly horrendous listening to the defense. It felt like Grace was on trial, yet not able to defend herself. Hopefully this means no other family has to go through this, and men will stop using this defense as an excuse to kill women, knowing they can get a lesser sentence. We hope that the rest of the world takes notice and follows our lead, especially New Zealand. Changes need to be made to protect women and make sure this doesn't happen again. I want to give a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Maria G, Camilla H, Zafod, Kelly Y, James H, JD, Eric G, Paulina GS, Melanie G, Megan K, Stanley B, Nicole O, and Kat P. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E
I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run